Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, a podcast that helps the 54% who did not vote for Donald Trump talk to those of us who did about the most divisive issues in our country. This week is a special mailbag episode where we include your questions throughout the episode. Most of the time, your questions neatly conform to our existing format, so we didn't really have to change up our routine. Remember, we encourage you to call our voicemail number at 508-687-2589. It's 508-687-2589 and leave your questions. There's always a chance that we'll play your question on the air, as we will with a lot of people this episode. So let's start with the news of the week. Ravi, what do you have for us this week? We are officially less than 100 days from Election Day, so strap in for what's undoubtedly going to be a bumpy ride. And speaking of that election, the president had to cancel the in-person portion of the convention in Florida because of local resistance. And Florida's case count is now larger than New York's and ranks second nationally behind only California, a state with almost twice the population. So in a rational political climate, the president would be responding to this epidemic and economy with urgency and ambition, but that's unfortunately not what's happening. The White House unsuccessfully attempted to block additional funding for testing in the GOP stimulus plan. Can we, for a second, like, can we just meditate on the fact that the White House is openly, I mean, I know we've known this for weeks, but this is just kind of incredible, right? That the White House openly is like, let's test less because then fewer people will know there's a problem. Like, that's their solution. I'm, I don't, we don't need to talk about this for long. I just, it's hard to let that pass by without being like, that's crazy. Yeah, you know, it's like, as Mike Murphy was saying, this is their sort of wet streets cause rain theory, which is that testing causes the virus. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me, it reminds me of the clip from The Jerk when the guy's trying to shoot, trying to kill him and he's shooting at him and he's missing and he's hitting all the cans and Steve Martin is like, he, he hates, hates these, these cans. cans. Stay away from the cans. Stay away from the cans. <laughs> well, Thankfully, uh, that attempt failed, but the GOP does appear united in proposing to cut federal unemployment payments from $600 down to $200 a week because, in the words of Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, it just wouldn't be fair to use taxpayer dollars to pay more people to sit home. And the GOP bill comes as these federal unemployment benefits under the CARES Act are set to expire later this week. And that brings us to our first listener question of the week. Hey, thanks, guys. Love the voicemail. Thanks for reviving the podcast. This is, this is fantastic. So here's my question or, or what I need help responding to. So uh, Senator Cruz over the weekend said that extending the emergency
emergency unemployment benefits will incentivize people to stay unemployed rather than seek employment since now they're making more on unemployment. So I think this is kind of a Captain Obvious situation because that's kind of the goal, right? Keep them at home so they stop the spread and keep them in their homes with money for food and essentials, right? But with that said, uh, how do you eloquently respond to family that agrees with somebody like Cruz on this? Thanks, guys. Can't wait every Thursday for the podcast. Thanks. Bye. So, Jason, what would you say to our listener? So first, in order to buy this argument, you have to assume that people are like, well, this will last forever. And people don't think that. Like, people understand that if they quit their job, then when COVID is over, when the pandemic is over, they still don't have a job. And then I actually would go a direction with this where I would remind people that, look, Republicans are the ones who insisted on tying this to unemployment. If you didn't tie it to unemployment, if you did what the Democrats wanted to do in the first place, and you just said, look, let's make sure we send people enough money to get by. Let's let's send them uh, a check or a monthly check for everybody, rather than going through these Byzantine uh, unemployment systems at the state level, if we did that, then people have an additional incentive because they're like, well, if I if I keep working at my job, if, if that's available to me, and I have this, then I can pay my rent. So let's remember that that's what would be, that's what would make more sense anyway, is not to tie this to unemployment insurance. This is a great opportunity when somebody says this to go into what I think is a pretty solid argument for at a minimum temporary use of universal basic income, because I think that's what's needed to, to juice the economy right now, which for most Republicans seems to be the number one issue over the health, as if the two of them aren't tied together. Tying these payments exclusively to unemployment, I think, was messed up in the first place. For one thing, it leaves out all entrepreneurs. It leaves out everybody in the gig economy. I think it's just an opportunity to, to point out that all they've really done is screw small business by raising unemployment insurance premiums uh, and making it really difficult to access. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot because my sister is on these benefits, and I think it's important just to turn the clock back to when the original CARES Act was passed. So this was March 27th. The president signed this bill into law. And in March 27th, there were around 17,000 new cases of coronavirus. And so one thing to ask yourself, well, has something changed between when the Senate passed that act, 96-0, in response to you know what was an unprecedented crisis— has something changed between then and now that should make us less concerned about keeping these benefits, you know, less concerned about the virus, less concerned about the economy? It must be that there are fewer cases of the virus every day. That could explain what the GOP is up to here. But I looked at the data, and we have about four times as many cases uh, daily now than we had back then. We're uh, now north of 63,000 new cases as of yesterday. So it's actually getting worse. So if anything, we should be going in the other direction. And the theory behind the CARES Act was that not just that uh, we wanted to keep money in the economy and keep people whole, most importantly, but also that we wanted we didn't want to incentivize them to take unnecessary risks in their employment. And so if you buy Ted Cruz's premise and a lot of these other folks that this is going to incentivize some people not to go to work, I'm not sure if that's the worst thing in the world, Jason. I mean, first of all, you make a great point that we are engaging in a, in a lot of wishful thinking. We, we wish that everything was getting better. We wish that we were at the point where we would naturally be transitioning into a more normal conversation about you know, unemployment benefits as if we weren't in a zombie apocalypse. But that's not what's happening. It's getting worse. So we shouldn't transition into a different way of thinking about things. And your point is a very good one, which is 
you know, we don't want to put people and businesses in a position where they're like, we have to forge ahead. Like New Zealand, they're not even wearing masks. <laughs> like, like <laughs> it's not impossible to get to a point where things do feel normal. But first, you actually have to go through like you have to treat it first. And we didn't complete doing that. But let's let's say for a moment we take everything Ted Cruz is saying and we we say, OK, that's right. Like and, and Lindsey Graham and everybody else who said, well, if you give people you know, benefits, then they won't go back to work. Let's assume for a minute that like what I said a minute ago about the idea of just, you know, not means testing it and sending money to people that would cause fewer people to work. Okay. The whole point of doing that in the first place was really an acknowledgement of demand side economics. It was an acknowledgement that we want to juice the economy. So we want people to have money in their pockets so that they'll spend it. Because if people will spend money, then that's going to help grow the economy. First of all, I don't think this doesn't cause people to quit their jobs. But even if it did, you're still juicing the economy. You're still sending money out to people who have to spend it. And by the way, you're also potentially staving off the oncoming eviction uh, and homelessness problem that we're about to see. One thing I want to caution people is, is I would be a little bit careful about arguing the premise, which is uh, the premise that people are making more under unemployment than they were previously, because there is some evidence that in a lot of states that is true. And once again, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, there was a study by Ernie Tedeschi that showed that in 38 states, people were making at or above what they were making before. Who are these people? At least for the jobs that were lost in March, uh, around 60% of the jobs that were lost were in the service industry, restaurants and bars. At the end of the day, I just think this comes back to rejecting a, a different underlying premise, which is that that the worst possible thing that could ever happen is for people to make more money than they would have otherwise made. Like, I don't understand why that's something we're so afraid of when, and what I think you say to your friends is, don't you agree that work seems to pay less in relative terms than it used to? I mean, you used to be able to like work a minimum wage job and pay for college, and now you can't even get close. So if the result of this right now is that income seems to be more. That's not a bad thing, first of all. And then second, I just, I know I've said this before, I just return to what is the point of being the wealthiest nation in human history if you can't cover your people for a year during a global pandemic? Like, why did we become the wealthiest nation in human history? I mean, it's not just so we can build more F-35s. Like, it's so that people can not starve to death when it's too dangerous to go to work. Even though this is the mailbag episode, we'd be remiss if we skipped our quarantine corner. Jason, what do you have for us this week? Uh, I actually have an appeal to people, uh, a request for advice uh, in that part of quarantine is that everybody has gone out and bought themselves uh, a bicycle. And it's really hard to find a bicycle. Everybody's out of bicycles to sell. And my son and I go on these bike rides uh, every Sunday with a group of his friends. It's a great socially distant activity to do. And I have been writing for the past couple of months, my wife's Huffy from middle school. <laughs> and it's just starting to really what hurt my back. It, it's green. And, and it, it, you know, it's fine. My point is, if somebody knows, like in the Kansas City area, if somebody has a bike they want to sell me, I would really like to buy one because this middle school Huffy of Diana's is, is just, it's kind of hard on my body. My quarantine corner example is that there's a book called Atomic Habits, which I highly recommend, and I just reread it. It's all about the small changes you can make, and that's why it's called Atomic, uh, small changes you can make in your life. 
that can make a huge difference. And there's a part of the book that talks about what they call temptation bundling. What it means is taking something that is a bad thing, quote unquote, uh, or something you don't do enough of and putting it together with something you really love. So um, what I did was I, I looked back and I was like, you know, when have I always written the most and the most productively? It's when I had this rule where I could only drink coffee beyond one cup a day if I put in 30 minutes at a time writing. So I mean, I could drink two cups if I wrote 30 minutes. If I write for an hour and a half, I could add three cups of coffee, et cetera. And so I started to associate the process of writing with drinking coffee and it made the process even more pleasurable. So that was my big aha moment, which is I'm, I'm doing that again now, which is uh, I only get one cup of coffee a day unless I write. So hopefully this will help spur me to write more. I think Diana read this book because there's a part of it maybe that says that you have to celebrate when you do the things you're supposed to do. Because So I had this problem where I never remembered to turn out the light in the shower. And she had me start doing this thing where every time I turned out the light in the shower, I would turn toward the mirror and flex like I had just like done some amazing thing. <laughs> and uh, and I did it for like three days. And now I never forget. To, I don't flex in the mirror after doing it anymore, but I never forget to turn out the light. This episode of Majority 54 is brought to you by Helix Sleep. Let me tell you why this is a perfect example of my life coming full circle. The very first, I think, the very first podcast I ever did was in late 2016. I did Keeping It 1600, which later became Pod Save America. And I called in and I was joking about uh, all the sponsorship and I claimed that I was going to get a Helix Sleep system. And uh, now here I am. Years later, we have our own podcast. I sleep on a Helix mattress, and they are a sponsor of this show. So, you know, that worked out. On that same interview, that same episode, the guys at Keeping 1600 asked you about an event you were heading to later that week. Can you guess what event that was? Oh, that's right. And I then I plugged Arena, didn't I? Yep, that's right. Helix is responsible for us meeting each other, but Jason, is that all they're responsible for? I mean, they are also responsible for figuring out the mattress that is perfect for you. I mean, if you head to Helix Sleep and you take their online quiz, in just two minutes, they're going to match your body type and your sleep preferences to the perfect mattress. And who knows? Maybe they'll play matchmaker and uh, you'll end up with a nice podcast. Everyone's unique. And Helix knows that. So they have several different mattress models to choose from. They have soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Uh, I can't imagine the people who pick firm, but, you know, more power to you. Uh, mattresses are great for cooling you down if you sleep hot or if you live in places like New York that are on fire right now. Well, for example, you know, Ravi took the Helix quiz, was matched to the midnight mattress because he sleeps on his side, apparently, uh, and he, he likes a medium feel. Not super firm, not super soft, right in the middle. Unlike his politics, he just likes his mattress <laughs> right there in the middle. So, so if you're looking for a mattress and you take the online quiz and you order the mattress that you're matched to, you can add on sheets and pillows. We got some pillows, too whatever else you need for your bed. And the mattress comes right to your door within 10 business days. Oh, by the way, here's another cool thing. It comes in like a box and it gets unfurled. And that sounds weird, but it actually works out great, which is awesome because anybody who's ever carried a mattress up any stairs knows that it's this is a better arrangement. Um, so anyway, you don't have to go to a mattress store ever again. Jason, Helix is awesome, but you don't need to take my word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best mattress overall. Uh, in 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. 
So everybody can just go to helixsleep.com slash majority54, take your two-minute sleep quiz. They'll match you to a customized mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you can try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but, but you will love it. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash majority54. That's helixsleep.com slash majority54. One more thing, we want to tell you about a show that we think you might like. It's called Pantsuit Politics. A lot of people, when they find out I work in politics, are surprised because you know they think it's depressing, they think it's overwhelming and intimidating, partially because they watch shows like House of Cards or Veep. But we know that politics isn't like that, right? No, I mean, I've watched The West Wing. I've seen the entire thing start to finish like four times because... I want to believe that politics is something else. Yeah, and it's, you know, whether we like it or not, politics is important and it impacts our lives. And so Pantsuit Politics is a nationally acclaimed podcast dedicated to having political conversations that inspire, like West Wing, rather than deplete us, like House Cars and Veep. So the hosts, Sarah and Beth, they're Kentucky moms, they're lawyers, they're friends, they create an informative, grace-filled space that looks at politics holistically. And listening to it, it's great because you're just hanging out with Sarah and Beth. And they blend hard facts with important social and cultural undercurrents so that you don't miss the big picture. In the last two weeks, they've been diving into their How to Be a Citizen Civic series, where they break down the complexities of our unstable political system. They'll answer the most basic questions about our government, from how the three branches work, to the difference between primary and general elections, and the philosophy behind the Federalist Papers. Their goal is to answer these two important questions. How do we get here? And how do I get involved? So listen to Pantsuit Politics every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. For this week in misinformation, we're going to go with another listener question. Hey, guys. Uh, loving the show so far. Uh, what would be a good response to people, friends and family I've known and loved for many years who suddenly fall deep into the uh, conspiracy theories as touted by QAnon. Um, it's really hard to have a rational conversation with some of these people because anything you say or provide evidence for or use you know, from a scientific basis is um, immediately put down as um, lifelong brainwashing and you know, everything that we've ever been taught is a lie. Um, it's, it's really hard to have a coherent argument uh, when someone is coming at you uh, with that as the foundation. So if you could just speak to that, um, that would be great. Anyway, thanks so much, guys. Love the podcast. We've received a few listener questions about QAnon, so we decided to, to highlight one of them. Uh, but thank you for sending in uh, your questions and concerns. Let me just start by giving a brief explanation of what this thing is, QAnon. I could talk for hours, maybe days and weeks about what QAnon is because it's kind of an elliptical, evolving conspiracy. At its heart, it's, it's just an unfounded conspiracy theory that says that Donald Trump is waging a secret war against elite Satan-worshipping pedophiles in government, business, and media. And there's this whole thing around who Q is, and Q is a potential person who purports to have had some highest possible level of government uh, of government clearance beyond uh, anything that we know about and knows all the secrets of our government. QAnon, which is the, the followers of Q, believe uh, that there's going to be a day of reckoning when people 
prominent people like Hillary Clinton are going to be arrested and held to account up to execution for their criminal conspiracy. There's way more I could say about this, but I'm going to spare you. If you want to learn more about it, um, I suggest you don't, but uh, you can (laughs) find so much on the internet about it. Uh, But Jason, um, well, wait. I have. I have how a do question. we handle? So, like, I have a question. So, these people believe that Trump is like exp- he's working to expose this. He's the hero. Yeah, yeah. So, usually, I try really hard to say you should engage everybody, and that there's a way to have a friendly conversation with everybody. But I don't think there is in this case. I think this is like having a family member who's in a cult. And what I think is important about this, and it's not just QAnon, it's any of these conspiracy theories, and and it doesn't have to be this one. Like for years, we've all known people who, when you try to engage them about politics, they're like, there's different levels of this. It'll be, look, both parties are the same. They're all in it together. All politicians are crooked. All you know. So sometimes it's minimal like that. But I think what all of them really mean is, I don't really want to engage on this. Like, I think it's easier for me to just justify my view that I don't have to be informed, that I don't, I don't have to engage in the world, and I don't have to be productive because nothing matters because it's all a conspiracy at the top and we have no control over it. And I think what's interesting about QAnon is that the Trump campaign, I think, is just one of the first ones to come along in 2016 and say, well, you know what? These people usually don't vote because if you're opting out of the system and making up an excuse to opt out of the system, you probably don't participate in it. And so they just said, well, let's just signal to these people that we're with them. And then we can grab a bunch of people who you know, usually just isolate themselves and alienate themselves from the system. And so that's what they did. And so I think when you're engaging somebody like this, first of all, if it's just you and them, just move on. Just disengage. I mean, it's like what the army teaches about a sniper. Just break contact. Like, it's not going to work. You're not going to win. But if it's you and a group of people, like a group of your friends or your family members, and they're doing this, I think you have a responsibility to focus on containing it and not letting it spread. And so this is a rare time where I'm going to tell you, you should make sure that the people around you see how ridiculous this is and not the person you're talking to. Don't focus on them. So you got to ask questions like, so just so we're clear, only you know the truth. The rest of us have all been <laughs> deceived and only you know the truth. And then I, I would say like, what else have we been lied to about? Like yeah. demonstrate how unreasonable and unrealistic they are. Ask them like moon landing, that happened or no? Like the yeah. world, like flat around, where are we at here? So that this doesn't spread. My father is not, I don't think he's QAnon, um, but he definitely brings a nutty conspiracy theory to the table almost every time I see him. Uh, And it's exhausting. And I agree with you. When it's one-on-one, I just move on. And one thing I've learned is like quickly challenging it, just being like, that can't possibly be true or whatever, just doing that really fast is it actually feeds the behavior. So uh, I like your your method of asking questions if it's a group just to help uh, expose the ridiculousness of it. And I think for listeners, my biggest suggestion is just ask why. Whatever they're saying, be like, okay, why is Hillary Clinton covering up all this stuff? Okay, all right, so there's some friend of hers that you think uh, is part of this. So then why uh, is J.P. Morgan involved in this? And why is, you know, and just, um, and then like, okay, then why are all the people who work for Hillary Clinton covering up for this? And then all the people that they know 
you know, why is a pizzeria in Washington, D.C. Uh, involved in this? Uh, and, and how come all those other people are involved in it, but nobody in this community seems to be involved in it? Uh, is there some special propensity for uh, pedophilia amongst Democrats, for example, uh, like Democratic elite people, but not Republicans? Like, what is it about Republicans that uh, has shielded them from this pathology? You know, and just ask them a bunch of questions and appear to be earnest. And then when other people look on and are listening to this, chances are they're going to, the more you're just asking questions, you don't even have to say the thing. Everybody will be thinking it. Yeah, because the, the problem with directly engaging and, and making your argument back is that, as we just found out when we tried to explain QAnon, is that this person is an expert in it, right? Like, you're not going to be able to win this argument because they have a PhD in bullshit and you don't know where they're going to go with it. So you're right. Like, just ask a bunch of questions because if you argue back, like, they've read something on a message board that'll respond to what you're saying and there's no way you could have predicted it. And just for listeners, just so you know, just to round out what this thing is, QAnon, uh, and why we even have brought it up is that it, as, as much as we're poking fun at it, it is serious. Like there are people who have, who are believers of QAnon who have done terrible things in the world because of their beliefs. Now, I wouldn't say that there's an epidemic of those acts unless you count voting for Donald Trump as that act. <laughs> um, but we're seeing growing evidence that there are prominent people in our political life, and you can guess what party they're in, who are espousing these beliefs. Two weeks ago, the head of the NYPD union was doing a Fox News interview and had a QAnon mug in the background. If you want to go back and just rewind the tape and listen to what I said this conspiracy theory is, and then just think about how dangerous it is for the head, uh, a leader within the NYPD to be believing this, now you start to get the sense of why we're even talking about this. The president has retweeted QAnon supporters. Uh, Eric Trump has uh, tweeted memes from QAnon supporters. And then we have people running for office around this country who have won their primaries, who are avowed, uh, or not even, I don't, I don't want to go so far as to say avowed, but who have said very sympathetic things about QAnon, like Lauren Boebert in Colorado, who said, if this is real, meaning QAnon, then it could be really great for our country, meaning the movement to take on this conspiracy. And even crazier, Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, who won her Georgia primary, said uh, of QAnon, uh, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to take this global cabal of Satan-worshipping pedophiles out this is a per these are two people who very likely will be members of Congress. And so that's why we mention it is because, and I don't want to be mean because this is majority 54, but these are lunatics who are about to uh, achieve, uh, in some cases already are in positions of power, but um, we have more of these people attaining power. And so I wouldn't say that this is a majority issue uh, among our members, but it is a growing weird group of people who espouse very dangerous beliefs. Well, and at a minimum, it's of the people in power, it is just your basic cynical, like, well, we can use this to our advantage. We can grab these voters. All we got to do is a little wink and we're good. And that's just really sad. Well, I could imagine Trump at his uh, Oval Office desk and they print this thing out for him. And literally anything can come after the sentence, you are the hero. And it could <laughs> yeah. be anything. You know, uh, we could, so so That's maybe right. we could start playing around with this and coming up with really amazing, bold, progressive ideas after. And you are the hero of the story, Donald Trump, and see if we can get get him to to um, exhibit the behavior we need. That's clearly how they got him to wear a mask. <laughs> yes. I mean, he literally then tweeted out like, "Aren't I great? Look at me wearing a mask." I mean, so you're right. We need a lot more like 
Maybe we do need more positive reinforcement. Maybe we should start a new podcast just about how awesome Donald Trump is for all the progressive things he does. Uh, well, that brings us to another listener question on this question of misinformation. Jason and Ravi, it's Patrick Cronin from Springfield, Virginia. This past week, my son's unit in the armed forces had COVID, and my son just came out of COVID, and that's the backdrop for a party I went to Friday night. And it was a garden party. We're supposed to socially distance in the garden. I show up, and, you know, the host tells us, oh, it's too hot. So everyone's crammed into the kitchen. No masks, all talking loudly, fans going, no windows open. And I just politely went out to the garden and sat by myself for four hours. You know, people did come out and talk to me, but upon leaving, they said, you really shouldn't be so concerned about coronavirus. And, you know, I had held my tongue to this point. It's only affecting 1%, and it's only the elderly it's affecting. Well, I stopped them, and I corrected them, and I was like, well, It's killed 141,000 Americans, and there's just over 3 million cases. That's a 4% death rate, so it's not 1%. It's 1% for our category, and it's not just people with pre-existing conditions. So what I'd like you to talk about is not necessarily coronavirus, but, you know, when should we interject? Because one side of me says, you know, let the herd thin, follow Darwin, and Then I have a friend who served with you in Afghanistan as a doctor, and he talked to me about, just remember, when those people come into my emergency room, they're putting my nurses at risk. And when I incubate them, I'm more scared about my crew than when I was facing bullets in Afghanistan at the field hospitals on the front lines. So he encourages me to say something. So I don't know, Jason and Robbie, what would you do? Do we talk to these people or do we just let them live in their ignorance? All right. So I'll jump in on this one first. So this is obviously really important. And uh, this is, I would say, the QAnon stuff is important because of some of the things that people are doing in the name of it. But this is really, really important because of the amount of death and destruction that's happening because of COVID misinformation out there. And so I think the valence of what I'm saying here is going to be different. So I think if you care about the person who's spreading this misinformation, which we care about all people, but obviously if this is somebody really close to you uh, and you care about their well-being, you should talk to them and attempt to persuade them to uh, change their mind about the facts or at least change their behavior. And I've definitely dealt with this with people I care about, uh, and it's helpful to have some uh, command of the data and studies as you do in this question. So you know the facts and you're putting them out there and pushing back on misinformation, but that doesn't always do the trick. And so there's somebody um, at UCLA, an expert, a professor named Jonas Kaplan, who I recently interviewed, and he talked about how giving somebody the facts sometimes can actually have the opposite effect, the opposite effect. And in particular, Giving somebody facts about something, um, depending on how you deliver them, will get somebody to do the opposite or at least dig in on their beliefs if the way you're presenting the information or the way they're, they're, they're presenting information or, or um, at least uh, thinking about it is deeply tied to their political identity. And so if either you're saying you're castigating somebody because of their connection to Trump, and that is your jumping off point for the COVID misinformation, or if they believe what they believe because of their political identity, um, and obviously if those two things converge, then you are less likely to be able to use 
facts uh, in order to convince them otherwise. And so my big piece of advice before I pass it over to Jason is try to avoid the politics of the situation. So you can't control their side of the equation, but you can control yours. So don't make it political. Entrench this in your personal belief in this person and how much you care about them. Keep the politics out of it. Yeah, I appreciate this question from Patrick. I'm pretty sure Patrick and I have met. I campaigned uh, for a bunch of candidates in Virginia at one point, and I think I met Patrick. So Patrick, thanks for calling. I want to sort of combine this with several other voicemails that we got that we weren't able to play all of them, but we got a lot of them that were like this sort of thing, plus how do I handle it when I'm in a social situation and and everybody, you know, or at work when other people won't wear a mask. And so combining the two, I would say, I think you just focus on, leading instead of shaming because uh, to your point shaming doesn't work right like I, i'm just as bad as anybody in that i just i was at costco an hour before we recorded this and walking by people who like have the mask on but not over their nose like part of me wants to walk by and be like you're doing that wrong but i know that's not going to work so i don't do that but what does work is just leading so like if you're in a social situation or in a group of people who like at, at a outdoor party, like what Patrick was describing or outdoor get together and people are not wearing masks. It's like, just be the first person to put on a mask and, and make it not a thing. Just wear the mask and wear it. Like you forgot you have it on and you're just doing that. And if somebody says anything, well then you address it. But my theory is that in those situations, there are always going to be other people who are like, feel like maybe we should be wearing masks. And if you just lead and you're the first person to put on a mask or you're the first person to say, I don't think we should do this inside or whatever the case may be, people will follow that. Uh, and, and I think look, if you're trying to keep from feeling judged, what I do is, and I always give this advice, I guess, is you make it personal and you state your personal reason. So if anybody, uh, like if I'm in a, in a situation where the other person's not wearing a mask and I want to put mine on and I feel the need to justify it, I will usually say, because this is my reason, I'll usually say, look, I really want to be able to keep spending time with my parents and they're older. So I'm, I'm just being really careful about this. So I'm wearing a mask. And then if they don't sort of get that social cue and they don't put one on and they have one with them, I will say to them, uh, would you mind putting on a mask, uh, you know, please? But nicely, just do you mind putting your mask on? And what I found is people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, they, they just need to be asked. So... I'm not saying that solves it in every situation, but I think when you personalize it, you say, look, here's my reason, uh, then they get it. Well, that brings us to one final question on this topic. Hey, Majority 54, uh, off the top, I appreciate uh, Jason and Ravi uh, showing their age by calling this service an answering machine. I don't know that there are machines behind any of these anymore, but uh, I still appreciate the callback. Uh, that being said, uh, this is Dan's, Washington, uh, in, uh, who is a member of uh, Minority 33, where two out of every three people that I'm around voted for Trump in the 2016 election. One of the things that I certainly find uh, is helpful is to not just uh, tackle an issue per, per se, um, individually, for several reasons, but also um, to maybe dig a little bit into where they're coming from. I'm curious, um, from your perspective, what are some investigative questions when you find yourself in those conversations with somebody who has a different perspective um, to better understand where they're coming from before you perhaps bring out a, a, an analogy to enlighten them or a stat to inform them? 
but yet something to actually find out a little bit more about uh, who they are, where they're coming from, and where they're landing um, on this issue um, before a real constructive conversation can begin. Thanks, guys. One of the things that, that I do is I try and zero in on question about why is this important to you? It seems like it, it really matters to you and this bothers you a lot. I'm just curious why you're so passionate about it. And if they respond with like a stock talking point that they got from some article or, or Facebook or whatever, I press. I'm like, no, no, no. I, I'm curious how you feel like it's affected you personally, because that's generally going to be a pretty good insight into you know where they're coming from. And if it's somebody, and I, I took from the question that this might, in the case of the person asking, it might not always be somebody they're really close to. It might be somebody they don't know very well. And so when I'm in that situation, I find it really helpful to ask, you know, just a, a basic conversational thing, which is, what do you do? Because usually that can be kind of insightful about people's perspective. And then another question that is a perfectly uh, appropriate conversational question anyway, that's also revealing is, you know, some, some version of like, where did you grow up? What did your folks do? You know, that kind of thing. Because all that stuff can kind of help you see people's perspective and give you a little more information. And then in general, my advice is focus on asking things that you're actually curious about. Because if you're not really curious and you're just fishing for something that you can use and exploit and turn back on them, they'll, that'll be very clear to them and they'll become defensive. So, you know, people are interesting and somebody who has an extreme view that you can find that interesting. So just really focus on learning about how they got to the conclusion that they got to. And then once you feel like you've developed a full picture, that's when I think you've built some credibility up with them by taking a genuine interest. And that's when you can sort of, you know, in a genuine and earnest way, offer up your own perspective. Yeah. And I'll just add one thing that you just reminded me of. And, and I say this to my brother whenever we get in a heated argument. I'll stop a, an argument, especially if somebody's really trying to thrust their views on me and it's getting a little hot. I'll say, what's your goal in this conversation? That's what I'll ask them. Like, are you trying to persuade me? Are you persuadable? Do you think I'm going to change my mind? Are you going to change your mind? Are you open to change your mind? What would it take for you to change your mind? Like, what kind of fact or set of logic like could possibly change your mind off of this position? And if the answer is nothing, then it'll be like, what are we doing? Let's do something else. Let's talk about the Buffalo Bills, you know? No, I think that's really good. I like, I really like what is your goal in this conversation? Like, what do you want to get out of this? I love that. Yeah. With, my, with family, it's often just to drive each other crazy, which has its own value, but at least you know what you're doing. <laughs> Well, uh, we have our midlife crisis corner, and you know this is where we talk about fitness, sleep, nutrition, sanity, et cetera. Jason, what do you have for us this week? I have started, before I go to bed at night, you know, I, I always I, I put my water in a big jug for the next day. I've been doing that for a while, so I have like a gallon of cold water because the point of adulthood really is to learn how to hydrate. And what I've started doing lately is I, I cut up a lemon and I put it in my water, and it makes me feel like I'm walking through the lobby of a really fancy hotel the next day when I drink fruit infused water and it makes it way easier to hydrate nice that's awesome for mine i'm going to talk about uh, this thing that you and i both love which is called the murph and what murph is it's what they call a benchmark workout but it's named after uh, michael p murphy who was a navy seal officer who was killed in action and, and received the medal of honor and the workout consists of running a mile doing 300 air squats 200 push-ups and 100 pull-ups and then running another mile, but you don't have to do all that stuff in the middle uh, in any particular order. So you could break things up however you want it. 
And if you want extra challenge, you could do it with a weighted vest on. And uh, it's a way to honor the memory of Michael P. Murphy. People tend to do it on Memorial Day, but because of the constraints of our um, the the virus and quarantine and all that, it's not a bad workout to do if you don't have access to a gym. And so I recommend it. You could do it modified in many different ways. If you can't do pull-ups, you can Google modified Murph, and there are all sorts of things that resemble the back movement of a pull-up um, that are really good for you. But the reason why I'm mentioning it is because I think it would be a cool idea if we did it as a Majority 54 community in whatever modified way you can um, the weekend of Labor Day, since it's a weekend when people typically have a little bit more time and you can post your times and your modifications and all that and tag us on it. But it's a good challenging workout that you can do with almost no equipment. I'm all in. I'll do it on Labor Day. I don't, I'm not like you. I don't do it every other, every few days. That's my body would break, but I, I, uh, <laughs> I do it. I do it about twice a year and it is a smoker of a workout. And, um, and I would, I would really uh, encourage everybody to Google the Murph Challenge because what it does is it raises money for a scholarship fund uh, for the kids of, um, of fallen warriors. Uh, so it's a really it's a really great thing. All right, our final segment, as usual, is grab an oar. And in keeping with the mailbag theme of this episode, we're going to go to an email. It's a question from Shelly in California. And Shelly says, hey, guys, I'm emailing to ask what your take is on political donations. I ask because I'm one of those fortunate people who's able to work during the pandemic and my regular finances have not been greatly impacted. I'm interested in, in voting Trump out, but also I'm interested in helping my fellow Bay Area residents by giving some donations to my favorite causes, Fair Fight, the DNC, Joe Biden, BLM and local resource centers. I struggle with deciding if it's better to choose one and give one larger donation or if it's best to distribute equally amongst the causes I support. I love the pod and appreciate what you do. Keep up the great work. Shelly. Ravi, I'll go first. My take on this is, look, just by the fact that you are deciding to make contributions and give some of of your money toward these causes that you care about, I feel like you're already uh, doing more and, and doing something that frankly is patriotic. You're already doing more than what most Americans do. So I really think that there's not a right answer here. To me, it's, uh, you know, the stuff that you care the most about, that's where uh, you should be sending your money. And whether it's small amounts to a lot of stuff or one large amount, you know, I don't really think that there is a correct answer here. I think you're grabbing an oar and, uh, and you're doing the right thing. Yeah, I would just, uh, I agree with that, and I would point you in the direction of the effective altruism movement. And there was a book, I think, by Peter Singer that goes into this deeper, but, you know, they talk about, you know, if you want your money to, to do the most good in the world, they give you a lot of good resources and guidelines for how to do so. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening. As usual, I want to plug all the social media handles here. And this time, I specifically want to say, like, I'm going to watch, I would like to see a, a genuine bump on on ravi's followers uh so i'm going to be watching to see if that happens so uh it's at ravi m gupta on instagram and twitter and then also i'm at jason kander on twitter instagram and facebook uh and then also uh you can follow majority 54 on twitter it's just at majority 54 so thanks everybody i really appreciate it remember we all have a platform make sure to use yours today majority 54 is a wonder media network production It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? 
For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.